Previously on Flying the Line. The pilots of TWA strike over the four-engine pay problem and make significant contract gains. But ALPA President Dave Banke reveals his strength is in organizing, not managing. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Abridged from the book, Flying the Line, by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 13, The National Airline Strike of 1948. Part one. In the minds of the pilots of National Airlines, the strike of 1948 was like World War II. A good fight, a just cause, an evil foe. George Ted Baker, founder of National Airlines and its president during the strike, was the villain while Banky was the heroic champion of justice. Everyone has a story to tell about incidents on the picket line, about harassment from local southern police departments unfriendly to communist labor unions. It took guts to walk a picket line in the South in the late 1940s, and Nationals' roots were predominantly Southern. As Charlie Ruby could testify, the longer the strike went on, the greater the possibility of real violence. ALPA President Dave Banke had good contacts with other labor unions, particularly the seafarers. They offered to help, and at Norfolk, They joined the National Pilots on the picket line for a while. But it quickly became apparent that these other unions had different tactics than the pilots. The first thing any student of the 1948 National Airlines strike has to understand is that the reason for the strike wasn't really what it seemed. On the surface, the strike was over the arbitrary dismissal of a pilot named Mastin O'Neill who damaged one of the airline's lodestars during a landing at Tampa in September 1945. The runway at Tampa's Peter O'Knight Airport was only 3,500 feet long, with a dangerous seawall at one end. Not to mention, there was also a thunderstorm in progress. National old-timers think O'Neill did an excellent job that night, and that he was almost certainly a victim of the then poorly understood phenomenon of hydroplaning. He touched down easily in the first third of the runway, but couldn't get braking action, so he initiated a ground loop to stop the aircraft short of the seawall. No one was injured. The Civil Aeronautics Board found nothing amiss with O'Neill's landing, and at first it appeared that neither would National Airlines. Baker had a standing rule that anybody who damaged an airplane was to be grounded for two weeks. So when Operations Chief E.J. Kershaw told O'Neill to take two weeks off, no one thought much about it. The accident happened at 3.13 a.m. on Friday the 13th, and what was about to happen to 28-year-old Matston O'Neill would be enough to make anybody superstitious. Within a month, two more of National's lodestars crashed, and although both pilots were more guilty of error than O'Neill had been, 
the fact that he was first made him a prime target for Ted Baker. Many rumors over relationships and off-duty activities surrounded the entire affair after O'Neill was fired, even being credited with the reason for the 1948 strike. But O'Neill cited working conditions on the airlines as the origin of the conflict. His unjust firing was simply the only legal avenue Alpa had, making him the symbol. Banky's first public statement on the strike cited increasing apprehension on the part of the pilots about the safety of the planes they were flying. This apprehension was based on the serious doubts about whether the aircraft were being properly maintained. A mechanic strike had triggered the safety issue. National's pilots hated crossing their picket lines. The pilots were more than a little anxious about some hot-headed striking mechanic sabotaging a plane. In retribution to Banky and Alpa's allegations, Baker promptly slapped Banky with a $5 million slander suit, claiming that Alpa's use of safety as an issue was a smokescreen. This added to the pressure that Alpa was under due to its difficulty with the four-engine issue at TWA. There was also evidence that the Air Transport Association was encouraging Ted Baker to be as stubborn as possible to provoke a strike. If Alpa could be broken by a lost strike at National, it could be broken elsewhere by similar means. If upper management was ever going to rid itself of Alpa, now was the time. National Airlines was the 17th airline to sign an employment agreement with Alpa. On December 9, 1941, two days after Pearl Harbor and after a last-ditch resistance that had lasted nearly two years, Ted Barker allowed E.J. Kershaw to sign. Mac Gilmore, chairman of the National Pilot Group's Council 8 at the time, signed for Alpa, as did Ernest Springer, Strew Lander, and Charlie Ruby. During the protracted contract negotiations, which began on June 16, 1941, Baker fired two pilots who had acted as negotiators. Almost immediately after the signing, Baker began violating the contract, so Banky appealed to the National Mediation Board. One of the violations involved pilots who held reserve military commissions and who wanted to return voluntarily to active duty. Baker, who was notoriously unpatriotic, threatened to fire anybody who voluntarily went into uniform. Ed McDonald first roused Baker's ire by appealing to Banky in Chicago when Baker refused McDonald's request for military leave. By June 1942, under the cover of wartime emergency, Baker began paying his pilots a lump sum monthly in an unorthodox arrangement that clearly violated the contract. He at first appeared indifferent to Banky's threat of legal action, but later modified his attitude when Banky made it clear that he was not bluffing. In addition, on April 26, 1942, the Civil Aeronautics Board announced an investigation of National's pay policies and implied that Baker stood in jeopardy of losing his certificate. Baker announced publicly that he had had a change of heart. 
It would not be the last time that he feigned a conversation. Benke told the meeting of ALPA's executive council on January 22, 1942, that Ted Baker was a tough guy who was unscrupulous enough to take advantage of President Franklin Roosevelt's proclamation against wartime strikes. In a typical maneuver, Baker had laid off a co-pilot named R.D. Forsyth, who only had one day remaining in his probationary co-pilot period, and then offered to rehire him as a new co-pilot. Baker once declared that co-pilots should pay him for flying. The executive council voted Fordyce a salary of $105 a month, while Alpa appealed his case to the National Mediation Board. And as a warning to Baker that Alpa would no longer put up with his petty contract chiseling, the council also authorized a strike vote by Nationals pilots, a very unusual step in wartime. Baker reined in his brash tactics at this point, and things quieted down for a while. But in 1944, trouble again erupted at National Airlines when Baker hired a group of ex-Pan American Air Ferries pilots and slotted them as captains. But Baker ignored the seniority rules spelled out in the contract, contemptuously daring Banky to take him before the National Mediation Board again. Banky traveled to Jacksonville twice during January 1944 to straighten out the seniority problem at National. And as a result, Baker and Banky were taking an increasing dislike to each other. By the time Mastin O'Neill ground-looped his lodestar at Tampa, National Airlines was transforming into a major carrier. Because of the political contentiousness of Eastern Airlines' Eddie Rickenbacker, the Democratic administration in Washington punished him and Eastern by awarding a lucrative New York-Miami route to National, their principal airline competitor. Baker was buying a fleet of DC-4s and DC-6s, but all attempts to open negotiations with National on the four-engine pay issue broke down, as they had at other airlines. The pilots of National, accustomed to Baker's peculiarities, continued plugging along. At the last minute, just before National's pilots were scheduled to walk out on February 3, 1948, Baker might have offered to rehire O'Neill. It was rumored that an 11th-hour deal was worked out to rehire him, but that it fell through because nobody at the temporary strike headquarters in the Everglades Hotel would talk to either Kershaw or Baker. Baker made the statement on September 17, 1945, right on schedule, just as O'Neill's company-imposed two-week grounding ended. The Alpa loyalists had been through a lot with Baker. They had watched him maneuver, lie, cheat, and steal. Charlie Ruby, who was at National Airlines' creation in 1934, probably knew Ted Baker better than anyone. He'd heard Baker make similar deathbed statements, and so thought it better to walk out, get a firm commitment to rehire O'Neill, and then cancel the strike. Dave Banky agreed that a short walkout might have a therapeutic effect on Baker, but the decision to strike was entirely a local one. 
What followed was the longest and costliest pilot strike in ALPA's history up to that point. Most national pilots thought the strike would be short. The winter tourist season, traditionally national's most profitable time, was in full swing. The pilots thought they had Baker at such a disadvantage that he would have to submit to save his airline from catastrophic loss. But a small core of strike breakers continued to fly, and Baker used them as a nucleus to train other crews. Amongst the three was R.D. Fordyce, who was only at National because of Alba's efforts to protect him. Next time on Flying the Line, the pilots of National Airlines fight amidst a presidential election and pay a deep cost. Thank you for listening. This has been part one of chapter 13 of Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Copyright 1982. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or other podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Production copyright ALPA 2020. All rights reserved.